Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my, it's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others. Here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker, here with my co-host, PK, Patricia Kirkman. How are you doing tonight? Absolutely fabulous. It's been a wonderful day, nice and sunny out, cool, but feels good. That's nice. You're not roasting and toasting over there in Tucson, so that's a good thing. No, nice. the change in the weather has come Yay, yay. Well, we have a special day here in numerology. We have 11-11-2020, so tell us what's going on with us. Well, the 11 represents the number 2. 2 is about our sensitivity, but 11 is a higher number, and it deals with wanting things to be perfect. We deal with a perfectionistic aspect of things, but we're dealing with the month and the day both, so that's a two-month and a two-day so we're dealing with four stuff. It's all about the details of things. And here we are starting out the day with Veterans Day, and thanking all those that have served our country and have made us safe and secure. And I'd like to think those types of things will continue in the future, but we'll all keep our fingers crossed there. But it's all about sensitivity. And really what's going on right now, the month itself is about family and family situations wanting things to be perfect or part of of what's going on right now is everyone is feeling everything. We're kind of like a raw nerve right now. So that's pulling us back a little bit. And with the way things are going, shall we say, throughout the world right now, we, all we can do is say prayers and pray that things change to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to grow and to be free to do the things they need to do instead of being pinned down. So it's just kind of a kind of a crazy time. The month itself is about family things. So everybody's going to want things to be perfect, as I said. But the sensitivity is going to have everybody like they're walking on eggshells. Like we've got, today we've got Veterans Day. Friday we've got Friday the 13th, which is fast approaching. It, and it's a day about superstitious excuse me, superstitions and things of that nature. People are what's lucky, what's unlucky, fear of the black cats, of not walking under ladders, all of this. But the history's longest-running aspects of 
things that go on with what people think or what they are afraid of. They find out afterwards that, you know, that lucky four-leaf clover that you get or that rabbit's foot you've carried really doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. It's what you think that really makes things happen. And, and then we also second. have another issue going on. Mars is going to be uh, our sweet warrior planet. has been retrograde since September, and it's finally starting to turn around, and it will quickly move and create some issues to our plans, but there's going to be ups and downs that are going to be created. It's going to create some angers and some conflicts brewing under the surface. And I guess we have to admit that that is actually ongoing right at this moment. But it's finally going to change and go direct on the 14th. So come next Saturday, things will start to feel and look a lot better. But between now and then, think of yourself as riding the waves, hang on to the side of the boat, we'll get through, and we're going to make it safe and sound. Well, that's a good thing. Now, this is our second Friday the 13th this year, which is unusual, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I have a question that just somebody texted me this one. Um, 11. The number 11 is also a master number, isn't it? So they're asking why are you breaking it down to a 2? Since eleven is because a master number, all all numbers are reduced to a single digit when we're talking about them. The uh-huh. the eleven is a higher aspect of the number itself. But if I were to go into that and bring the other parts in it, sometimes it might be confusing for some people. Mm-hmm. There's the master numbers are a higher part of the number itself. So two relates to people, situations, uh, camaraderie, sensitivity as does the 11, but the 11 makes us lift it up. It's to the higher elevations of it. So that's why I reduced everything to a single digit when we're talking, because we don't have time to really talk about all aspects of master numbers and things like that, because we want to get to our lovely guest tonight. Yes, we do. We've got a great guest tonight. We have Nick Redfern. We're going to be talking about all kinds of things that we love, like Mothman, Men in Black, Black Eyed Kids, Martians even. We're going to be talking about Martians, too. But before we introduce them, I just wanted to say, make sure you go to our Facebook page, like us, follow us, do all of those wonderful things. And I wanted to also let everybody know, uh, we've started an account on Parlay and MeWe uh, because of all the censorship that has been taking place on social media as we know it through Facebook and Twitter. So although those accounts will still be open and available to all of you, we have started new accounts on the other uh, social medias. And I, from what I understand, they have jumped into the millions because of everybody fleeing the sinking ship of Twitter and Facebook. So I will be posting our handles there. You guys can follow us there as well. And then on those platforms, there's no concerns about what you say and how you feel. You can post it without fear of being censored. So that's a really good thing because I know everybody's kind of sick of that, the people that have spent time in Facebook mm-hmm. jail and and uh, all of that banned from Twitter. <laughs> you know, it's like, wait so a second. We, once we say something, why does it have to, why do they have to critique what we have to say? Well, they shouldn't no, it's, be. It's just oh, they, it's, up until... It's like you put it in the corner when you were a kid. Go to sit yeah, there until well, you learn right. how to say it like we want you to say it. Well, it's that's why people are so irate, and that's why so many people are leaving those platforms. Even if they ha- like, I've never been in Facebook jail, but I'm also very careful about how I word things. And 
it's nice to be on platforms where you don't have to be concerned about that. You just say what's in your heart, and people can like it or keep scrolling. So it's, again, a lot of people are moving over. Uh, some some of the big commentators have moved over from networks. It's very interesting to watch mm-hmm. this and, and see how many people have been uh, – you know, upset by the censorship, and they're they're willing to leave what they're familiar with to adopt a platform that's that's more user friendly and will respect our freedom of speech. You know, it's about time we have opportunities to. You know, we're not little kids. We have a right to. <laughs> oh, you know, the funny part is, we can be put in censorship, but the other sides can do as they damn well please. Not a yeah, good not picture, fair. is it? No, it isn't. I think we've we've figured that out, haven't we? We've seen it in yeah. action. It's very unpleasant. We've seen it. Well, you and I, we've been talking about the mainstream media lying to us about so many things. I'm not even talking mm-hmm. about the election. I'm not even talking about politics. I am not talking, talking about, about lying to us about yeah. other things. Yeah. So, you know, UFOs, disclosure, you know, sightings of cryptids that get reported to them, but they never bring it to us. So it's, you know, that's that's a lot of what we've been talking about for years, that we're tired of this uh, wink, wink, nod, nod from the anchors at these news broadcast outlets, and they, they just won't bring it to light. So all of this is giving us new opportunities, like you mentioned, and so it's great. And I'll keep posting how to get a hold of us on those other platforms, and feel free to join us there. Definitely. We're looking yes. forward to seeing seeing what can happen on these new platforms. So tonight we've got, as you know, guys, one of our favorites, Nick Redfern, is here. And he is a full-time author and journalist specializing, I can't even talk tonight, specializing well, in a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, UFO sightings, government conspiracies, alien abductions, and paranormal phenomena. He writes regularly for the London Daily Express newspaper, Fortean Times, Fate, and UFO magazine. His previous books include Three Men Sinking Monsters, I love that title, Strange Secret Mm -hmm. Cosmic Crashes, and the FBI Files. He has many, many books. Just go to Amazon. You're going to see all of them there. They're all terrific. Now, among his many exploits, Nick has investigated reports of lake monsters in Scotland, vampires in Puerto Rico. We've got to find out about that. Werewolves in England, aliens in Mexico, and sea serpents in the United States. And he's with us tonight. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, ladies. Thanks for having me on again. Hey. Oh, happy to have you. Yeah, we love having you here. And you've got a couple new books we're going to get to and we're going to talk about. But can we start with my favorite cryptid in the whole world, Mothman? What's going on with yeah. Mothman? There, there's been a lot of sightings of him lately, huh? Well, there have been some, and um, these reports kind of come in clusters. Um, there was a big wave, for example, in 2017, 2018, uh, around the Chicago area, and people reporting seeing these large sort of humanoid figures with these giant wings, typically at night. And um, some of the witnesses reported or thought they looked like sort of like huge birds. Others thought they were more of like um, kind of like a gargoyle in the sense of like a human-like 
figure, but with with wings. And um, and just actually in the last few months have been a number of other encounters and reports um, from Chicago as well, and particularly from the uh, around Illinois. And um, some people have sort of taken the view because of the original sightings in Point Pleasant that you know this could be sort of. Um, you know, sort of a precursor of, like, bad luck or something like that, in the same way that when Mothman was seen in 1967 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, they had the collapse of the bridge, which um, uh, that killed dozens of people, and, you know, that was sort of put down to the Mothman's presence, at least by some researchers. And um, so, you know, any time there's um, a report, if you like, of a Mothman-type encounter... You know, sometimes people are a little bit on edge because it kind of um, sort of mirrors, you know, what happened before. So uh, I always sort of keep an eye out for these um, these new Mothman-type cases. I find them fascinating, and I've been hearing from, I think it was Graham Phillips was telling me, over in the U.K. they've been having sightings. Have you heard about those? Yeah, yeah I mean... Typically, they don't get known or referred to as um, Mothman in the UK. Um, the the phenomenon actually didn't begin until sort of, um, for the most part, in the 1970s onward when people started to see these things in the southwest of England. And they became known as Owlman. Um, and they were kind of similar, though, to Mothman, sort of long wings, um, a, a human body-like situation and these and the, the classic red eyes that nearly all of these flying humanoids seem to have for for whatever reason and um the the Alman sightings began in 1976 down as i said in the southwest of england um but since then there have been a lot more reports um some in central england not too far from where i grew up as a kid actually um oh, kidding, huh? yeah and um so it seems to be, you know, like a, a worldwide phenomenon, really, because um, the just in, in Houston, uh, just outside, um, I'm just not outside, I mean in Texas, Houston, Texas, um, back in 1953, there was a spate of sightings of what became known as the Houston Batman. And if you Google oh, wow. um, Houston Batman 1953, you'll see a lot of the um, the stories about the Houston Batman, and um, you'll also be able to see some of the original newspaper clippings from the local Houston paper at the time. And what's interesting is that the story of the Houston Batman um, in 1953, that's 14 years before the Mothman phenomenon began. But if you read the story and the descriptions, it actually sounds just like Mothman, but in a different part, um, you know, of the country. And, um, and of course, I said the, you know, the Mothman by name didn't exist uh, back then. But you can find um, reports all over the country. Um, there was one in 1952 in September that became known as the Flatwoods Monster, which was like... Um, it's almost like a robot type thing, but it was sort of floating and flying and gliding through the woods um, in Flatwoods, West Virginia, late one night. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, you find a lot of these reports um, that are similar to Mothman. And um, 
you know, it, it's worth noting that although the names are different, you know, there, there are a lot of sort of strong similarities. And, um, and most cultures, you know, going back thousands of years as well, um, go back, you know, to those those eras when they were sort of perceived as demonic creatures, whereas today, you know, we call them cryptids, which is, I guess, you know, that, that demonstrates how cultures change, you know, over the centuries, that kind of thing. Yes. It definitely does. Now, has Mothman ever hurt anybody? I've never heard any stories about that. Well, I guess really it depends who you ask because, I mean, Mothman by name was first um, mentioned in the, the latter part of 1966 through 67, and then it continued um, throughout 67 in the, the small city of uh, Point Pleasant in West Virginia. Now, if you haven't been, for people who may not have been there, Point Pleasant, um, on the one side you've got West Virginia, and then on the other side you've got Ohio, and between them you've got the Ohio River. And it's a very big river, so um, over the years there have been multiple um, bridges. If you ever get the chance to go there, there are, like in, even now, like four or five huge metal bridges spanning the Ohio River. But... In December 67, one of them collapsed into the Ohio River, uh, killing more than, four, uh, more than 40 people who unfortunately drowned. You know, the, the bridge fell into the river and their cars and the people went with them. And, um, and they, you know, they obviously just drowned or couldn't get out of the cars. Um, now, because this... Yeah, and unfortunately, because this all occurred at the same time when there was UFO activity and the men in black were in the area and you had the Mothman flying around the, the skies above Point Pleasant, a lot of researchers uh, sort of suspected or thought that the Mothman was sort of like, um, almost like sort of bringer of doom, that kind of thing, you know. Um, and so you do have sort of if you if you read the books on the subject, there's literally dozens of books that have been written about Mothman, and it typically goes to sort of two angles. One being that it was just a coincidence that the the bridge collapsed and that the people died, or that the Mothman was some kind of almost like um, a grim reaper that deliberately caused this, or as John Keel, who wrote the Mothman Prophecies, um, Keel came to believe that Mothman wasn't a malevolent creature, but he believed that it was essentially he would turn up and warn people of something about to happen. So in other words, you know, the creature would, in its own weird way, would make its presence known as a warning of what might happen rather than the creature actually being responsible for it. That's, I, that's what I tend to think, too, something more like that. You know, but some of the witnesses in the Point Pleasant area, I think some of the original witnesses, saw lights in the sky. As you mentioned, it was UFO activity. And it was after the lights appeared that Mothman appeared. Do you think that Mothman is extraterrestrial? Well, I'm not sure if I'd call it in, um, sort of extraterrestrial. I think it's more like multidimensional because, you know, people saw it here and then it was gone in a flash and, mm -hmm. and sometimes quite literally in a flash. And, um, <laughs> wow. 
you know, and it was here one second, gone the next second. And, you know, it was in this one particular area for most of the the same time. Uh, there was an old um, a TNT plant in the area which had, uh, had sort of fallen, you know, to uh, rack and ruin after the uh, Second World War. And, it, and it's still like that now. It's a very sort of creepy, weird... Um, ruined old place it kind of looks like you know if you watch an episode of the uh, the walking dead you know and you see the ruined yeah. towns and whatever that's how that particular area of point pleasant still looks and you can go around the old tnt buildings that the military had and wander around and um so i think it's i, I kind of go with more of like an interdimensional kind of thing rather than something um you know coming from another solar system or whatever but in saying that i mean there were a lot of ufo connections to mothman um a lot of we uh, weird lights in the sky um and the people were talking about seeing the men in black uh warning them not to talk about what they'd uh, seen in relation to mothman and um and the and the men in black, you know, they were nothing like the the movie versions. You know, the um, the real uh, men in black are nothing like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. You know, <laughs> um, that's Holly that's Hollywood's version. But if you if you ask, you know, 99.9 percent .9 of most of the people who've been sort of terrorised by the real men in black and who you know the movies were based on, they actually don't really look properly human they look very pale and skinny i mean their their skin is literally like the color of a sheet of paper and they're skinny and they have these bulging eyes that they hide behind wraparound sunglasses and they they kind of look like um something half human half alien um so there's a lot of weird stuff going on from 66 to 67 uh, in Point Pleasant and then around Point Pleasant. And, and, let, me, um, let me just ask you about the Men in Black because that's, it was also yeah. on my list here of things I wanted to talk to you about since you're very knowledgeable on the subject. And why in the world would the Men in Black be there telling people to shut up about Mothman? Now, we've certainly heard the stories about them telling people to be quiet about UFOs and aliens. But why about Mothman? That's seems even more odd to me. Well, it, you're right. It actually is. And, in fact, everything about the whole Mothman situation in Point Pleasant was odd. You know, uh, a lot of it was sort of really strange and, and difficult to understand. But um, I've written several, I think four books now altogether, or three books on the men in black and one on the lesser-known aspect of the women in black. And, and all of them kind of look creepy and weird, you know, sort of a cross between um, sort of a vampire and and a freshly sort of dug up corpse is the best way oh. I can describe them. They look really weird and and sick and and, and they just don't look well. Um, but they also, they give off this sort of atmosphere of menace. Um, what in various words, several people have described them as having like what you would call mad dog eyes. You know, it's um, you know if you've ever met a dog for the first time, you know a particular dog you've never met before, and you loom over it, and the dog obviously you know doesn't he's he's sort of looking after his master, but you lean over, you know, and they have those sort of staring eyes for a few seconds or two, yeah. and you back away. That's how a lot of people have described 
the men in black and women in black, that they, they're obviously dressed totally in black, but they have this image and this sense of menace kind of oozes out of them. You know, that kind of situation where you meet somebody for the first time and for whatever reason, you just get a bad vibe from them. I think we've all done that at some point. You know, the person's never really done anything to you or said anything, but you just get this vibe from them. But everybody gets that from the from yeah, the men in black this, and the women in black. This is so and, creepy. Um, well, yeah, one I mean, of the a lot stories of that I'm sorry. Um, just one, what I wanted to share with you is that one of the stories that I heard about them, and it kind of goes along with you, what you were saying about possibly being half human or half something mm-hmm. mechanical, like a robot. Um, this gentleman was a filmmaker in Canada, and he had a paranormal television show, and he was contacted by a pilot. And the pilot said, I have footage I want to give to you, and you can clearly see the aliens in the spaceship next that was flying next to the plane. He was a commercial pilot. So this gentleman from Canada, the filmmaker, was very suspicious of anybody who wants to give him footage. He was very cautious. And he said, okay, just uh, meet me in this parking lot and put Back then, it was videotape. Put the video in this particular trash can, and I'll retrieve it. And so he sat back and waited for the guy to show up. He didn't really introduce himself or anything. He just waited for him to place it in the trash can, and then he retrieved it. And he said the footage was absolutely undeniable. So it was very soon after he got a visit from the men in black. They were outside in a van, and then they came and knocked on his door. And what he did was interesting because when they started talking to him, he would answer in a way that made no sense. Um, Like they would start talking about the videotape, and he would go off about coffee or, you know, just non sequiturs, just, you know, no syntax to his sentences. And it kind of fried their brain a little bit. He said that he could see that they just didn't know what to do with it like a person would probably say what are you talking about you know but they didn't have the wherewithal to to respond that way so you very well may be right about this robotic uh maybe they're robotic implants who knows but they just couldn't handle anything like that so he kept throwing things out at them and then they finally got enough of their mind mind together to say, if you play that footage on your show, you will never see your eight-year-old son again. Mm. So well, that's, that's sort of typical of a, a lot of those cases. And um, But you're right, a lot of people do describe both the men in black and the women in black as sort of being robotic. And, and interestingly, one of the witnesses uh, said to me they felt that when they were sort of giving the person the threat, it was almost as if the men in black weren't actually understanding what they were saying. It was almost like they'd learned the words parrot fashion, but they didn't oh. really know what it meant, as if they really were kind of something that had been created and sort of unleashed to threaten people, but that had no real self-awareness itself, you know. Yes, um, that's sort of makes it even, even more creepy when you think of it like that. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, I've never yeah. seen them. I don't want to. Yeah. Um, I've also heard of people getting sick after they've been around them. 
Is that true? Oh, yeah, well, this is a... Yeah, this is like a, a weird aspect of the phenomenon. Um, and again, this sort of applies to men in black, women in black, and also with the um, the more recent phenomenon of the black-eyed children, where um, the one thing that all, the, all three have in common, apart from the fact that they all wear black and they've all got pale skin, is that they all try and find ways to get into the home. That, again, that's the men the women in black and the black-eyed children. And right. what's interesting is that, you know, the, the men in black and women in black seem to have a, an ability kind of like um, like mind control where, you know, if somebody knocked on your door at midnight, you probably, and you look through the little spy hole on the front door, you wouldn't um, let people in. You know, if you saw three creepy guys there dressed in black and for black fedoras, you wouldn't let them in. But the weird thing is people often do let them in and that's the same with the women and the black-eyed children it's almost as if some kind of mind control is not just um trying to allow them to come into inside the house or the apartment or wherever um, but they're also trying to get the person inside to say yes you can come in and allow them to come in and this actually sounds very much like the old legends of vampires that yes. you know they cannot be allowed in unless, mm -hmm. you know, you give them permission to do so. And I sometimes wonder if the, those ancient legends of vampires may actually have been sort of driven by um, ancient stories of men in black and women in black and things like that. Um, but there's a lot of weird stuff that when people do get inside the house, um, they felt... The witnesses, or the victims, probably a better term, um, have said that they felt um, they were almost in like a dreamlike world. Um, you know, it was kind of, for some of them, you know, a situation where you'd been drugged or, you know, you were half awake, half asleep. Um, but a number of people have reported that in the days afterwards, or if sometimes the hours afterwards, they've started to feel ill and sick and typically it's usually just a, like a sense of of being drained of energy which i guess you could make a parallel there with vampires you know in the old stories they would yeah. feed on your blood for food but in the old legends but in reality today it's more like uh, one of the witnesses um to this said he, he felt like how it would be for like um like a diabetic person who perhaps you know, they'd missed breakfast, lunch and dinner and then it's like 10 o'clock at night and, and they start to get the shakes and they get clammy and cold and feel ill, you know, and they're at that danger zone when they've got to eat now, that kind of thing. That's how one of them described it. It was as if the black-eyed child was literally draining the person um, of not just, you know, sort of... Um, well, not blood, I should say, nothing like that. But they were literally draining them of, of energy, you know, the, the life force, if you like. And it does sound very much like a vampire, so you may be mm. right about that, too, that it is what people were seeing back in the 1800s or 1700s or whatever, and they interpreted what they were seeing this way. But, yeah, this yeah. energy drainage that people feel is, is quite interesting. And, again, it's like nobody has been able to discern where they come from. So many people have witnessed it, have seen them, and their cars, their old-fashioned cars, their old-fashioned way of dress. 
but nobody knows where they come from. Well, this is another weird part because they always, well, not always, but most of the time, the, the men in black turn up in these old-style 1950s cars, black cars, you know, the kind you would see in, like, an old gangster movie, you know, from the 50s, yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> That's a kind of what they drive. But a lot of the witnesses have said they've actually seen the car sort of, literally sort of dematerialize and vanish as if it was almost like a, a hologram or a projection or oh. that it had sort of slipped into a different dimension. So there's a lot of strange things um, like that. Now, as far as the black-eyed children are, are concerned, they actually weren't around or at least weren't spoken of um, until about 20 years ago. And um, that's when the first real... Um, story began with a guy named Brian Bethel um who's a he's still a, a works in Texas he's a he's a journalist and um he reported the first encounter of these creepy kids he was actually in his car and um and they tried to get him to let him inside the car and um he at first he had this feeling of his of his arms sort of going towards the car and opening the door and then he realized what he was doing so I don't think it's as simple as that, you know, the men in black, women in black, and the black-eyed children. I don't think it's as simple, you know, it's like they're a big happy family, you know, mom, dad, and the kids. <laughs> I don't right. think it's anything. <laughs> I don't think it's anything like that at first. What I do think is there's a possibility that we don't get to see what they really look like, and maybe they have the ability to present themselves to the, the best they can to make themselves look like us maybe we've never actually seen their real appearance but they do their best to sort of imitate how we look which would be even more creepy than if they were just a happy oh, family you know that's right that's right it's my goodness and and i've also heard especially with the black eyed kids um not so much with the men in black or women in black but that they have this incredible uh strength and also uh they're very fast well, yeah, I mean, they vanish quickly in that sense as well. People have seen them left the front door, and then the person comes out of this weird little dreamlike state. They charge to the door, and, you know, they might have a driveway of, say, 50, 60 feet, but they're nowhere in sight. It's almost as if they've left the area or fled the area impossibly fast. You know, they're just almost like a an athlete runner that kind of thing but even quicker than that and um so everything just about everything about the men in black and the all the spin-off creatures as well all of them have sort of these really strange aspects to them they don't look right um and some people have actually this gets really weird and creepy uh, i've got about five or six cases where the mib were close to the the person, and the person said that they could smell them, and it smelled like dirt, and um, oh. yeah, which was like really weird, you know. They're, they're just smelling, you know, sort of like um, sort of uh, dirt. That's the best way. The best way can they described it. So. Hmm, that's really strange. I mean, it makes me think of the mm. golem, you know, oh, yeah. and. Mm-hmm in Hebrew literature and, yeah, made from, I believe it was clay or dirt or something like that. Sounds similar to that. But 
Yeah, these things are, are very odd, and I think it's very odd, too, that the black-eyed kids showed up 20 years ago. It's like, why then? What What was the significance of what was going on at that time where they all of a sudden started showing up? And there's certainly been a lot of reports that have come out about them. There's probably more where people are just scared to death to tell anybody because people might think they're nuts, but there's been a significant amount of reports, right? Oh, yeah. I mean... I, I, unfortunately, you know, I don't have an answer as to why, you know, they suddenly started to surface um, round about 1998, 1999, something like that. I don't know why that happened, but that is, you know, predominantly around that time. Now, now since the reports have gone public, a number of people have come forward and said, well, yeah, I did see something like this back in the 50s and in one case in the 20s. Oh, um, okay. But they, but the stories didn't surface until, you know, the um, the latter day reports began to uh, to surface. Um, but this, one of the things I found um, in relation to the more recent um, cases is the fact that um, it almost seems like they want to try and infiltrate us, almost as if they're testing us to see if we. You know, we realise there's something strange about them, or or they or we don't notice it. You know, and but I guess particularly today, with a lot of people wandering around, you know, with their phone looking down towards the ground and their chin towards the ground, well, they probably would have a better chance today to be seen, <laughs> uh, not to be seen, I should say. Right. Uh, right. Today. Always been yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah unless they but that is the one of the interesting. Yeah, but that is one of the interesting angles that people had this kind of vibe that they were testing the person to see if they could be sort of seen for what they were or if they felt you know that they could get inside the house and um or if they couldn't why couldn't they get in that kind of thing so you know that 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 sort of goes down a bit of a sinister path when you think all these things may be trying to find ways to to infiltrate and um and we're yeah. sort of like totally unaware of it for the most part yeah they certainly seem to know more about us than we know about them and that's unfortunate it definitely places us at a disadvantage and there are people that i've heard have gotten so sick they've died or almost died from being in close contact with them the unfortunate ones that let them in the house or let them in the car or whatever that i've heard those stories too right the people have really suffered from being in close contact with them well, all of those groups, um, I mean, there's sort of other parallels as well. You've got the men in black, women in black, black-eyed kids, and then there's two similar other uh, groups. Uh, one's called the Hat Man, which is like a shadowy figure, but still has like the old-style fedora hat. And, um, and the other one called the Shadow People, uh, which is exactly as you would expect them to say, to seem, you know, they're like um, a shadow. Imagine a, a shadow moving across your room, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and they all seem to be part of the same category. Um, but exactly what they are, you know, it's difficult to say. Most of the reports do occur at night. And a lot of them occur, these weird experiences occur between about 1.30 and 3 a.m., and then, wow. you know, it's not usually before then, and it's not usually after. It's around about 1 to 3 a.m. And that actually, interestingly enough, is one of the, or the, the key 
time frame when most people are in um, in a really deep sleep state. You know, that, that's when you're at your deepest level. And, of course, what that demonstrates is that they're targeting us when we are at our most vulnerable because, right. as I said, we're in that really deep sleep state. And um, so, you know, I think that sort of demonstrates like a degree of cunning, if you like. Um, and again, yes, it people does. To, yeah, people have also seen waking up in the middle of the night and seeing the hat man or the um, the shadow people. Um, they also felt, you know, that they something was being drained from them. They felt clammy and cold and pouring out with sweat, you know, and, and just felt almost like they'd run, you know, a marathon, that kind of thing. They were just um, exhausted. And, and then when they managed to break the... Um, the the plot the, the you know the plot that that um, the creature was working on whatever it was you know I think um, a lot of people say that um, they really had to sort of fight to um, to get rid of it you know but when they were able to sort of break the I guess the chain so to speak um, they would suddenly vanish and um, mm. and would be gone but there's a lot of cases like that and I actually get more and more today. Um, reports of the hat man this uh, again sort of a cross between the men in black and the shadow people but with the 50s fedora and mainly the reports I get are, are in the bedroom late at night and um, but so many people report those now you know it's sort of yeah. I wouldn't say it's yeah. an epidemic but um, you know but, but it is a lot of people yeah that's, that's really interesting it seems like We've heard this a lot, you know, the veil is very thin now, and so things pop in and out of our reality like never before. Mm. But, yeah, those those things <laughs> do give me pause. And the thing that scares me the most, I have to say, is a skinwalker. Have you had any experience with people uh, giving stories to you about that? Yeah, actually, um, about two years ago, um, a friend of mine, me, Erica Lukes, we went out. She, Erica's a good friend of mine. She's got a radio show, and she does a lot of UFO research. And she lives in um, Utah in Salt Lake City. And, of course, um, Utah is where there's a huge amount of um, skinwalker activity. And, of course, you've got the famous skinwalker ranch as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, right yeah. And... Um, I flew down uh, about two years ago, and um, we spent about a week uh, just hanging out in the area and uh, and investigating some of the areas and the cases. And um, and I did um, also did um, a TV shoot on Skinwalkers about ten or eleven years ago, and got to speak to some of the the local native. Um, Americans in the area and they were extremely concerned not just about talking about the phenomenon of the skinwalker but actually speaking the word itself and so obviously you know we, we respected their beliefs and you know and their and, and their history and their and their stories you know and um, but it was very clear that a lot of people you know are still very um you know, sort of scared and uh, intimidated by the whole situation of the phenomenon. And I think one of the reasons being, you know, that the, the, the skinwalkers uh, can reportedly have the ability to shapeshift 
So in other words, they can take on different forms, which potentially would prevent you from actually possibly, you know, actually seeing a skinwalker for, actually, for what it was. You know, right. it could be something that looks friendly, um, but actually isn't. Um, and what I've heard is of a sto- skinwalker, though, Nick? What is it exactly? Is it a human that has taken on some evil entity and merged with it, or what is it? Well, one of the, the sort of primary ways in which the skinwalker is supposed to, to come to life is basically um, witches, for example, who know the sort of the old um, the, the ways and means to, to achieve this um, would be to sort of um, create almost like a cloak out of the, the particular animal that you want to turn into, and it would create sort of like a magical version or a supernatural version of the of the real animal. In other words, you might see someone, uh, you know, somebody... I mean, I'll give you a classic example of someone um, who said to me that they saw, actually out in Utah, this was, this was a long time ago, though, but they saw a man running, and then he suddenly went down on, on his hands and knees like a, and turned into, like, a, a large wolf. Whoa. And... Um, yeah, and so in other words, it's it's basically what you perceive you want to be. Um, you go through this ritual using the sort of the hide of the animal um, as a means to become the creature you want to come. Um, and but in saying that, you know, a lot of them um, are sort of very da- perceived as extremely dangerous animals and um but the the image of like a huge wolf is sort of one of the dominating um images that people talk about and um and um and again it's sort of fast what is it that makes them so dangerous because you're i know i've heard this too that native americans don't even want to mention the name and if they know who the skinwalker was they don't want to mention that name either because they're afraid that it will call that to them but there is a real fear it's like that particular entity whatever it is is much more threatening it seems and much more dangerous than mothman or anything else it just seems like it has a special evil all its own oh yeah i mean everybody gets that sort of sense from them um you know the native americans as said um you know sort of stay away for the most part from talking about it because they don't want to and you know you have to respect their their belief system yeah um and and what's intriguing is that um like with the black-eyed children and the men in black very often when people have been in the presence uh, of the skinwalkers they've fallen sick and ill as well and uh, i know of several cases um, where people have been out in those areas like the Skinwalker Walker Ranch and they've taken like a memento with them, like a rock or something like that. And then they've started to get sort of weird and strange things going on in the home as if Uh-oh. some aspect of the phenomenon had followed them home, that kind of situation. So that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> No, I always tell people I've been on a lot of expeditions like this, you know, and you go there and 
And somebody, you know, I remember once, this is going back about 10, 11 years ago, and somebody said, well, cool, look, look at that. That's like a carved stone or something, which it was, and it could have been really old, you know. And I was like, you know, well, do you really want to take that and possibly, you know, take something else back with you home? And, right. um, and I didn't mean it a joking sense. I mean, I know enough of these stories and events to be extremely careful as to, you know, opening doors that you might not be able to close, so to speak, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not a good idea to just mm -hmm. drag things back with you because you don't know what's attached to it or if it has something yep. to do with a portal that has been opened on the property. Yep. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go off-world next because you have a new book out about life on Mars, so let's hear about that. Well, this book's just come out about a month or so ago, and um, it's called The Martians, so it's sort of an easy title <laughs> to understand yeah, what it's about. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it when the publisher, you know, give you a, a title that everybody gets immediately. You know? <laughs> yeah, and you can, you can remember it when you go searching on Amazon, yes. So how did you come yeah. to write that book? Well, I mean, over the years, I've always been interested in, you know, the the planet Mars, um, mainly because over the years um, there have been a lot of anomalies, um, I call them, have been found and photographed on the surface of Mars. I think most people have probably heard of the famous face on Mars, which, um, oh, which yes. was first photographed back in the 70s um, by NASA. Now, I wasn't sort of aware about it back then in sort of 75 76 i was just a little kid um but you know as i got older i started to read um books on mars and um and and looking you know seeing some of the images coming back from nasa um that seemed to show some really weird imagery like not just the um the face of Mars itself, there's actually another one um, known as the Crown King, which also looks eerily like a, a human face. And mm. um, so over the years, you know, I just followed the stories and collected a bunch of material to the point where I thought, you know, why don't I write my own book um, and, and really cover just about every single mysterious aspect of Mars, like, for example, these photographs of these ruins of what look eerily like pyramids, um, others that seem to show images of bushes and even trees. Um, and bear in mind, these are all NASA's own official pictures, but they just say, well, it's just, you know, um, it's just shadows and things like this making it look like that. But I actually don't think that is the case. And... Um, and so there's a lot of other weird stuff, like, for example, in, the, in 1984, the CIA secretly ran a remote viewing program. For people who may not know, remote viewing is sort of using your mind to psychically um, try and pick up images in the distant past or the present right. or possibly mm -hmm. the future. And uh, the CIA actually brought in, in 1984, um, a remote viewing program to try and figure out um, if there had been life on Mars in the distance past, distant past. And reportedly, the remote viewers saw Mars in a state of um, like near destruction. The atmosphere was on fire and there was earthquakes. And there were these tall, incredibly tall, humanoid figures that looked 
primarily like us, but they were sort of about 10 to 12 feet tall and they were heading and racing for these massive underground bunkers. Now, you know, that sounds like sci-fi until you realize this was an official investigation of the CIA. And what's more intriguing is that at the time, 1984, the CIA actually kept this um, project away from NASA. NASA didn't know anything about it, which kind of makes us think now that possibly a number of um, government agencies may have actually investigated Mars in, in varying different ways. Um, and it's, it's almost incredible to believe that NASA, the one agency who you would think would be kept in the loop, were actually kept out of the loop. Yes, that's very odd. Mm-hmm. Yep, everything's odd but, about Mars. <laughs> I guess. And, you know, we had a guest on our show. I don't know if you know uh, Captain Kramer. Randy Kramer, um, he no, I don't think I do. Said that he was trained to be a soldier on Mars, and he spent a number of years there. And according to him, there are colonies of people from Earth that are living there. And he was deployed as a soldier along with others to protect the perimeter of the living areas of those those people that had colonized there. I have no reason to doubt him. I mean, to me, it sounded. Perfectly reasonable. Why not? There's a lot mm-hmm. of things that go on that we don't know anything about. And I wouldn't be surprised to hear uh, that this, something like this really did happen and is happening now. So well, have you met actually, any other soldiers or people who say they've been soldiers on other planets? No, there's, there's one or two have come out with that. But, um, you know, the as far as the you know, the angle of underground, as you just mentioned, I mean, that would make a lot of sense. And that actually came out in the CIA's program in 1984. Um, they were could see these gigantic, uh, like massive, you know, right across the horizon, these bunkers where it seemed to, uh, uh, or you assume is because of this, that they knew in advance that something was going to happen to the planet and so they did their best you know to try and uh, try and survive deep underground as we would you know if say for example we were suddenly told that you know a huge asteroid strike was going to hit the earth and you know two-thirds of the the world would be destroyed or the, the population would be you know we would do our best to survive and um and so you know i think a lot of people just say, you know, Mars is a dead world. I don't think it is. Um, there's a lot of, as I said, there's a lot of evidence that suggests there could be, uh, like, bushes and trees, that we know there's a huge amount of water on Mars, a massive amount. Um, and when you've got, you know, sort of plants, trees, water, and there's a number of photographs, about, well, there's one extremely photograph, extremely weird photo that's become known as the face hugger picture. And if you Google face hugger Mars photo, you'll see the what looks like this sort of large spidery crab like creature walking up a wall of a cave. And um NASA said it's just um, you know, shadows, tricks of the light. Oh, so but it's right. very difficult <laughs> it's very difficult to look at that picture and say that's not like a a tall or a large sort of six, seven foot tall crab spidery type thing. Um, 
as I said, you just just look up um, Facehugger. It's named after the the facehuggers in the Aliens movies with Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> but um, oh. but if but yeah, if you if you Google uh, Facehugger photo Mars NASA, you'll see the picture, and I cannot see that it's anything other than some kind of weird life form. And so I think Mars, it's obviously not the world it once was, I'm pretty sure, based on data that we have. But um, at one point, you know, it may well have been a world just like ours, with a thriving civilization and families and architecture and you know, that everything that, that we have. But, I mean, it would be like if we had a you know, a nuclear war, a worldwide right. situation, you know, a it's nuclear war all across the planet. I mean, our world would be just ravaged for thousands of years. You know, civilization would be just totally gone. And I think that's probably what something happened, whether the equivalent of a nuclear war or some, some something like a huge asteroid strike, meteor, meteor strike, something like that, I think, destroyed their civilization, but enough survived to continue to live. And today we still have enough ruins, photographs of ruins and things like this to demonstrate that Mars is not dead. Uh, it may not be in a good shape in terms of civilization, etc. but I think, you know, we are looking at a possibility that there could actually be thriving um, Martians deep under the ground. And, and maybe they know we're coming here, you know, with these rovers and the right. um, you know, craft in, in orbit taking pictures. They may actually know, and, um, and possibly they're doing their best to, um, to keep away from us, you know. Yeah, really. <laughs> Why not? Which wouldn't be a bad thing. Us. We would only cause problems for them. You know, exactly. That's what we do. we'll do that wherever we go. <laughs> God. Yes, it's a shame, but yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Mars is a fascinating world, and I can see why you'd be interested in writing about it. I've seen a number of those pictures that have come back mm. from the rover and other things, and in some of them, it, I, I've seen what looks to be some type of, I'm not going to say human, but human-looking thing walking across one of the deserts. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know the one you mean. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of pictures like that. And um, I think when you put all of these pictures together, we're not just talking about one or two, you know, you, you have to realize um, it does seem to go down that pathway of, you know, of some sort of um, civilization at one point. Now, of course, one of the most interesting aspects of all this story is that the reason why we have all these photographs of the pyramids, of these what look like carved faces, uh, the face hugger picture. The, in the interesting thing about all those pictures is that not only are they official NASA, NASA photographs, but on top of that, NASA actually released those photographs into the public domain. It wasn't like we had to force NASA to reveal them, you know, right, with the Freedom right, Information Act or anything okay. like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. no, we didn't have to do that at all. NASA put it all out there for everyone to see. And this has sort of given rise to the theory that possibly um, this might be sort of a kind of slow disclosure, you know, um, bit by bit reveal yep. a bit more and a bit more to the point where 
you know, it doesn't become like a kind of, um, you know, where it just blows everybody's minds. But by putting this out slowly and bit by bit, potentially, you know, it could put us all in a place where we we come to a we acclimatize to the idea where well, they found something else weird and they found something else and well maybe there really are martians and it would be far less of a shock to put out these pictures bit by bit than suddenly have you know a major world leader say oh we've decided to tell you now that there are martians you know right. telling people just like yeah. that might not be the best way to do it but put well, these pictures right. out bit by bit, that might be the the best way to do it. Well, they're certainly doing that with what they now have renamed UFOs to be, UAPs. They've Mm. taken away all the the baggage that goes with the term UFO and created something new, and it's a whole PR campaign that they're doing. I've seen it before, where they just do exactly what you said, leak out a little bit of information at a time, get people accustomed to it. It's also a matter of ownership. Our government wants to own this so that it looks like they control this. So that's the other reason, in my opinion, um, for why they do things the way they do. So, it's, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, they don't want to freak us out so we all lose our minds and go screaming into the night. However, yeah. it's, it's also about we've got this. You know, you don't have to worry. Your government is still in control. Yeah, and I think I think there's also another angle as well, and that is that, you know, we always kind of think that our governments sort of know everything and they know this and they know that. But I think part of it is that I don't think whoever is sort of running this Mars program, um, I don't think they actually know the full story. I think they, they've got enough photographs and images that have let them let them believe that you know that Mars once did have a a civilization. It may not have been too dis- you know different to ours, but I think because they don't have the full story, they're sort of careful as to what they reveal. Because the last thing they would want to say would be, "Well, sorry, you know, we know something's going on, but we haven't got, really got a clue." You know, <laughs> we've got all these pictures. We know something was there, and maybe they're still interacting. But we don't really know what what's going on. So I think that's part of the reason for the si- a degree of silence is because yes, I agree with you. yeah, it's it's sort of be awkward if they were asked questions, multiple questions, and they didn't have the answers. So I think that also explains this sort of partial, sort of you know, bit by bit, slip by slip. You know, let's put something out. I agree with you. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely the, what's going on. It's, it's fascinating to watch. And I used to be in public relations, so I recognize what they're doing very clearly. And, again, yeah, bit by bit, who knows, maybe we'll get the full story, or as much as they know in our lifetime, but we'll have to see. Mm. I'm not going to hold my breath either. <laughs> <laughs> so, my goodness, there's so many monsters left to talk about. Now, have you done anything with werewolves? Yeah, I actually have. Um, yeah, I mean, when people ask me about werewolves, you know, I sort of uh, focus more on what have become known as the dogman phenomenon. Yeah, um, dogman. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, if you look at the whole, the old legends of um, of werewolves, you know, it is very much sort of like 
the Hollywood imagery, you know, somebody gets bitten on a full moon and, you know, they kind of burst out their clothes and turn into, um, you know, a, a werewolf. Um, now, a lot of that is sort of, you know, based on legend and, and movies and things like that. But that doesn't take away the fact that there is this phenomenon of what people describe as like upright wolves, um, which has become known as, as the dogman phenomenon. Now, the dogmen are literally as they sound. You know, you're talking about, imagine a, a regular wolf, but much larger but that has the ability to stand not just on its four limbs, but also on its two limbs and run just like us. So you can easily understand why the dogman has been sort of perceived or or is seen as a werewolf, but it's the dogmen actually aren't werewolves. You know, there's no issues. Um, I don't think there's a barely, maybe one, two, three reports of the dogmen actually mutating from human to dogman and back again. And even those couple of cases are sort of, um, you know, suspect. But the the reports of the dogmen are completely different. You know, there's no actual, a lot of people don't realize this, there's not an actual shape-shifting process. Um, there's no issues with silver bullets or the full moon or anything like that. These things, they seem to be animals that have the ability, as I said, to to walk on two or four limbs or, or run on two limbs and four limbs. And so it's inevitable that people are going to make a parallel with, you know, the old legends of um, werewolves because that's just what they look like. Now, and these, But these have to be pretty large, right? Oh, these yeah. I mean, people are talking, yeah. Some people are talking about, you know, like seven or eight feet tall. I mean, imagine something, you know, like a, a huge wolf on its hind limbs, you know, staring at you and growling at you. You probably wouldn't sort of quibble that that wasn't a werewolf for you, so, you know, you would think right. it was. Um, now, the, 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 the expert in this field is, is Linda Godfrey. Um, Linda's done about five or six books books on the whole uh, dogman phenomenon and uh, she's a good friend of mine and, and I recommend any of Linda's books Linda Godfrey on the dogman uh, phenomenon now what's intriguing is that um, there's several theories as to what the dogmen actually are one being that they are just an unknown type of wolf or a canid um, that has the ability um, to stand on its um, back legs and 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 walk and run on its um, legs, back legs. Mm -hmm. Now that's not entirely out of the picture. I mean, you know, if you've got a if you pet dog, you know, you can teach your dog to sort of walk on its back legs for a right. for a few mm -hmm. steps. You know, um, yeah. everybody said you know a little dog bouncing around on its back legs, um, but um, the when you talk about the dogmen, you know, we're talking about people seeing them racing at like 25 miles an hour for, you know, maybe 300 yards. I mean, that's something totally different to teaching yes. your dog to, you know, dance around the living room for 30 <laughs> seconds or whatever, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a big difference. Um, yeah, so that's very different. And now Linda has noted several things. 
One is that um, they're often seen uh, near sac ancient sacred sites, um, oh. like ancient mounds. You know, there's a lot of these ancient mounds in and around Wisconsin and Michigan places, Ohio places like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so Linda's come up with a various theories, you know, the paranormal angle, uh, this connection with sacred sites, the possibility of just real flesh and blood animals that science hasn't found yet. Um, and also, you know, she's also addressed the idea of them being extraterrestrials. Um, but whatever the answer is, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that the phenomenon of the dogmen is a real one, but we're still kind of scratching our heads um, as to what they actually are but they like a lot of these other things they don't seem to particularly like us and they kind of give off this sense of menace you know like i mentioned with the the black eyed children and the men in black you know they have this sense of you just want to be away from them you know and have they ever attacked anybody the, the dogmen well there have been some reports and there are a couple of rumors of people being killed and things like this but it's never really, you know, been proved or anything like that. And for the most part, it seems that they're more content just terrifying us, uh, which I probably <laughs> would be an easy thing for them to do, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but for the most part, um, you know, sort of deaths, you know, we're, we're not, it's not like we're getting sort of, you know, multiple reports every month of people torn apart and in these areas. There's nothing like that. But there's definitely um, this atmosphere of, of just creating dread and fear. Yeah, that would, like you said, be very easy for them to do, being seven or eight feet tall and looking like a mm. wolf standing on two legs. That would do it for me. Yeah. So I mean, I'm, I'm just under six foot three, but if I saw one of them... I'll be going in the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> After I've got a couple of photographs. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can't you can't miss those photos. Those photo ops are important. Yeah. So yeah. So it, again, another interesting cryptid creature, and not knowing where it comes from, but it, it does seem to have an association with ancient mounds and sacred sites. Mm. So, but again, I think so many of these things they sound very interdimensional. They sound like they could come yeah, into our dimension and and leave whenever they want, and that's maybe one of the reasons why we never find them when we go looking for them. Well, that's actually a good point, because, I mean, if you take, for example, Bigfoot. Now, right. you know, Bigfoot is described as, you know, sort of six, seven, eight feet tall, these creatures, like giant apes, um, and they've been seen all across the United States. Um, in fact, they've been seen on every U.S. state apart from Hawaii, which, of course, you know, Bigfoot's not going to swim all the way to Hawaii. <laughs> um, yeah. But, the, um, but the, the Bigfoot creatures, you know, I mean, it, when you say Bigfoot, it makes people who don't know about the subject, it makes them think there's just one Bigfoot r racing around madly all across the U.S., you know. <laughs> it's not like that at all. You know, people see these creatures, the big feet, if you like, or the big foot, however you want to call them. You know, yeah. there's, there would have to be multiple ones, thousands across the U.S. Now, bear in mind their size and sheer scale and, and, and you know, the size of them. Um, 
we've been we've had reports going back to early Native American times, you know, as far as uh, recorded history goes, you know, reports of 200 years ago, um, and um, you know, back in the 1900s and 1800s, you can find old newspaper reports where they referred to wild men, and um, and the term Bigfoot was actually not actually um, created until the 1950s. Now, in my view. The fact that we have, you know, multiple reports, thousands, you know, the last five, six decades of these gigantic things roaming across all the U.S., by now we should at least have got one of them alive, dead, or, you know, in a situation or blood or DNA that was, you know, just that could not be denied. But the fact is they, the Bigfoot creatures are not just elusive, they're like, impossibly elusive you know i could understand it if bigfoot was like the size of a little mouse but it's not right. it's like a four to five hundred <laughs> pound eight foot seven to eight foot tall ape and we can't even catch one now the next step in that angle is the fact that there have been a lot of reports of people seeing these creatures vanish in a flash of light or they've just literally winked out in a second and so this actually does make me think that these, the Bigfoot creatures, are not just um, the equivalent of a North American, of an African uh, gorilla. I don't think they are just, you know, an equivalent of a, of a, of an African, you know, fully grown gorilla. I think there's something weird about Bigfoot, which probably does have something to do with sort of dimension hopping, and um, you know, one minute they're in this reality and another moment they're in another reality um and there's a lot of strange things like that in relation to bigfoot which make me think it's not just an ape there's um they're so elusive to the point where it's impossible but the fact is we do have a huge amount of extremely credible witnesses and that's where i sometimes clash with friends in in this field in this subject of cryptozoology as it's known a lot of them take the view that they're just an unknown ape. But for me, there has to be more to it because there's so many weird aspects to the Bigfoot mystery. Well, I agree. I think that there is so much more to this. And who knows? They may have different tribes of Bigfoot mm -hmm. that do different things because I've read reports from long ago of people going missing and mm -hmm. that the Native Americans have said, yeah, they come to our camp, they steal our children, our women, whatever, and take them. So, you know, there is that aspect where these reports are probably true mm. and and these people are never seen again. So what's going on? You know, there's some of them might be friendly and some tribes of them may not be. And maybe mm. we're a food source or something else to them. But it does seem like there's branches of this tree with Bigfoot, different characteristics, different parts of the country. Uh, mm -hmm. Some in, in the country are smaller than others. It just seems like there's a lot of variety, right? Yeah, and, I mean, this actually doesn't sort of just relate to the dogmen or Bigfoot. I mean, another example would be uh, the Loch Ness Monster. Now, again, in the same way, people, when you mention Bigfoot, people think there's just one, you know, and then, like, with the Loch Ness Monster, people think it's just been one for 
yeah, since recorded right. history. I mean, the first report of the Loch Ness Monster was in the uh, 6th century. You know, we're talking about 1,500 years ago with the official... Um, official report made um, and people have suggested they could be giant eels or they could be surviving plesiosaurs which were marine reptiles that lived in the same time as the as the dinosaurs um, but in saying that there's a lot of weirdness at Loch Ness for example different witnesses have seen them have said the what they saw was something very similar, excuse me, different rather than similar to what somebody else saw, almost as if they were possibly shapeshifters. And um, there have been a lot of cases where people have tried to photograph these creatures when they've seen them surface out of the water and the camera's jammed or the, the picture's fogged. Um, and oh. on top of that, um, the famous occultist, Alistair Crowley, um, he actually had a home called Boleskin House that overlooked um, Loch Ness, and he performed all sorts of um, magical rituals and rites to try and summon up um, sort of um, supernatural, monstrous creatures from within the loch. And one of the theories is that although... Um, the creatures had been seen long before Crowley was in the area. One of the theories is that he may have actually sort of invigorated even more this sort of supernatural uh, atmosphere at Loch Ness. And it really is sort of a creepy place. The first time I went there was with my uh, mum and dad when I was about five, and um, my dad told me the story of the Loch Ness Monster. And even now I still have a few memories of that first trip. And it's, it is a creepy little, well, not little place, it's a large place, you know, surrounded by old ancient ruined castles, and um, the hit, you know it's got these sort of very dark sleeping hills, and um, and there's a lot of weirdness, weirdness uh, beyond what I just mentioned at Loch Ness. For example, one of the early 1960s um, Loch Ness uh, monster researchers, Ted Holliday, um, he began by thinking that the Nessies were just some kind of unknown animal. But mm -hmm. the more he dug into it, the more he started to get weird synchronicities and his camera were jammed when he thought he saw one of the creatures. And in 1973, actually at one of the shores of Loch Ness, um, he saw um, nothing less than a man in black, uh, which oh. dematerialized in front of him. And um, Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and he actually involved, he got involved himself in also in 1973 um, with an attempt to, um, basically he tried to find a way to banish um, these creatures psychically, if you like, out of the lock. Uh, in other words, it was sort of like an exorcism. And oh uh, this was actually done by a professional priest. And, um, and... When you put all these issues together, what you actually have is a really weird situation and scenario surrounding Loch Ness that, you know, you've got this huge lake, which is about 22 miles long, about a mile wide, and about 800 foot um, deep. And it's called Loch. Loch is just a, a Scottish word for lake. It doesn't mean anything other than okay. that. But um, what you have is our stories of these supernatural shape-shifting um, Nessies, which back in the 1700s um, 
they were sort of given other names as well, one of them being the Kelpie, uh, which is Scottish for water horse, and that's what they called them back then. So mm -hmm. you had the supernatural Kelpies, um, you had the presence of Alistair Crowley performing all sorts of magical rites at Loch Ness, um, you've got... Um, exorcisms, men in black, and even UFO sightings. So, again, oh, I think... Gosh. Yeah, so I think we're dealing again with creatures that are not just unknown flesh-and-blood animals. I think there's, again, something weirder about them. Yeah, I had no idea that Loch Ness was such a creepy place. That's the first time oh, I've heard that. Oh, extremely so creepy. Interesting. <laughs> oh, boy. The fun, you know. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And... Yeah. I mean, also, with all the history over there and, you know, talk about dragons in the sky. I mean, I often have wondered if the Loch Ness Monster was a dragon that took to the water. And I don't know, but I agree with you, multidimensional for sure, all of these things. And for men in black to show up, God, those guys get around. <laughs> well, what makes it even more sinister is I mentioned how that um, – that um, Ted Holliday in 1973 at the shores of Loch Ness, he, he saw this man in black. And although the man didn't say anything, he got this sense that uh, Ted Holliday got the sense that the man in black was warning him. Now, Ted Holliday would take his vac uh, vacation every summer for about three weeks and spend his summer holiday off work to, um, to, to go on out to the lock and see if he would, could see anything. Now, mm -hmm. it so happens that because he would take the same week every time, um, the following year after seeing the man in black, he was back there that year and actually the same day. And on that very same day, he actually had a near-fatal heart attack. Mm -hmm. And um, luckily, they, um, the, the guys from, you know, an ambulance was called and they took him to the lo uh, local hospital and he survived. But he died young in 19... 59, excuse me, in 1979, at the age of 59, and okay. some of the local researchers believed that um, his sort of untimely death, and the fact that it was the same exactly one year to after he saw the man in black, some researchers think that that, that had something to do with his um, with his death at 59 in 79. So. Gosh, that would be horrible, and yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it sounds like he just wanted to have an experience of seeing this thing. Did he ever get to photograph it? Oh, yeah, he got some pictures back in the 60s. He and did. Um, okay. Yeah, and he was also, a number of people shared their pictures with him. He actually wrote three really good books um, on the Loch Ness Monster. And, and what's interesting, each book um, actually changes as his belief systems changed. You know, oh, okay. he, he began from sort of looking at things from the idea that they were just unknown animals or something from the prehistoric era that had still survived. But then as he went along, he began to see all these weird aspects. And so the three books that he wrote, um, the first one was called The, the Orm of Loch Ness, O-R-M. Orm is an old ancient English word for worm. So that was the first one was The Orm of Loch Ness, um, and then he did one called The Dragon and the Disc, which was like a, it demonstrated the connections between UFOs and strange creatures. And then his final one was The, the Goblin Universe, which was actually 
um, published after he died, uh, but he'd finished the book. Um, and that talks about how he came to believe that all of these different phenomena, like Nessie, UFOs, Bigfoot, he believed that they were all somehow interconnected, and, and that was the theme of his last book, um, The Goblin Universe. Oh, fascinating. Well, now you have a book out about lake monsters. Tell us about that and the name of that book. Uh, well, the, bons- uh, the book's called the Mo- excuse me, start again. <laughs> the book's called <laughs> Monsters of the Deep, and um, it's a big book. It's um, pushing on uh, 400 pages, and wow. it's a study of lake monsters, sea serpents, and ancient creatures, um, like for example the kraken and things like um, Jonah and the whale. So, in other words, it's sort of a historical look at anything that's sort of weird and monstrous that lives in the water. And I think, you know, most people have heard of the Loch Ness Monster and also the the more famous um, lake monsters in the United States. You know, we've got, uh, like, for example, uh, Pogo and, and Champ of Lake Champlain. Those are two of the most famous lake monsters in the U.S. And, and there are actually a number of weird paranormal aspects to those cases or those entities as well. Um, but in this book, I also talk about um, some creatures that may not actually be classed as um, monsters, but they might be giant examples of known um, creatures. For example, giant uh, squid. Um, okay. We rarely get to yeah. ever see giant squid, but um, there are reports of sailors seeing giant squid maybe 200 years ago when they were seeing creatures round about sort of 120, 130 feet long, which would be incredible, you know, to that's see huge. something which... And I think most people wouldn't quibble that <laughs> that's a monster if you saw that coming towards you. you know? <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> yeah, yes. so, so in that book, I talk about reports of giant squid, giant turtles of about 14 or 15 feet in diameter. Um, but also, you know, how regular animals have sort of got into our society, things like alligators in the sewers and things like that. And um, so it covers, I wanted to make it a little bit different, you know, not just talk about lake monsters and sea serpents and leave it at that, but have these alternative things of, you know, wondering what living under the the sewers of the cities, that kind of thing, and and how folklore may have um, been driven by actual real, Creatures. I wouldn't be surprised at all, for example, if the the kraken, you know, which is has a, appeared in numerous, um, you know, sort of uh, fantasy movies over the last few years. I would not be at all surprised if the kraken was actually a real thing, but not a literal kraken, but probably and almost certainly a gigantic squid. Um, mm-hmm. right. But it became known as, as the as the kraken. Oh, it's fascinating. Of all these things. <laughs> You never know if you're going to encounter one. I mean, you go out looking for them. But let me ask you, of all the things you investigated, mm. is there any one thing that stands out as really terrifying to you? Um, I wouldn't really say terrified because that, that's not really my like my character. I mean, I, I kind of like to get out there and, you know, into the jungles and the rainforests and, go looking for what I can, you know. I'd, I've never really been in that position where, you know, I, I felt 
no, I'd better not do that. So I'm kind of more, yeah, let's go and do it, you know. But <laughs> what I would say, though, is the, the expeditions that, that I've really enjoyed most of all would be all the various um, expeditions I've done to Puerto Rico looking for the original chupacabras uh, when the reports oh. first surfaced in 1995. And since 95, I've been on... Um, uh, been to Puerto Rico on um, many occasions um, looking for these the chupacabra, which is very different to the chupacabra that people talk about now, which looks like a hairless dog. But the, yes. the original one, Puerto Rico, is almost sort of like reptilian with these. It's got sort of these um, spikes down its head and neck, which are kind of like a like a punk rock mohawk down the head and neck. <laughs> and um, oh that's what they, they look like. And um, and I've been there many times now and spoke to a lot of um, ranchers, um, farmers, police officers, civil defence people, veterinarians, um, all who've seen and investigated cases of the Chupacabra on um, Puerto Rico. And there's no doubt in my mind these are real creatures. They seem like... Um, as I said, they've got these rows of spikes, but they kind of look like um, a very like an agile reptilian creature about the size of a chimpanzee, a large chimpanzee, and you know having the ability to run very quickly. And I've spent probably well months all together collectively on Puerto Rico, which uh, is a place I really like, you know, to go to anyway. It's a really cool place, and um, mm -hmm. and to have monsters there as well, you know, is even better. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Beautiful landscape. You got a beach there. Yeah, oh yeah, nice, it's a really nice, cool nice. place. Yeah, a lot of history yeah. and a lot of margaritas and. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't beat that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Nick! This has been so much fun spending the evening with you and learning more about what's happening in the world of cryptids and men in black and women in black and black-eyed kids and. And the Loch Ness Monster, I learned something new from you tonight about all of that. And, again, I want to tell everybody, Nick's a great writer. Go to Amazon.com and just pick any of his books. They're all excellent, all worth reading. And I think a lot of them are on tape now, right? They're audio books. Yeah, um, I've done about 56, 57 books, something like that. I've, I've kind of oh lost the, I've kind of lost the number my, myself, but... Uh, <laughs> So I don't bother anymore. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, people can reach me. Um, I've got an Amazon page. I've also got a blog, uh, which is, if you just Google Nick Redfern, World of Whatever, you can reach me there. And you can also reach me at Facebook, and I'm always happy and pleased to chat with people if people have got questions or if or they... stories to share, yeah. Yeah, and if, and if they've also, also, if they've had an experience and they, they're looking for answers, you know, I'm always happy to to chat you know i'm not one of these who sort of oh don't talk to me i'm an author yeah, you know i'm, I'm, so <laughs> I'm not like that i'm one of the, I'm, I'm happy to sort of hang oh, out with everybody that, well, and you know and share great, information well, which i think that's gonna, how we're going to get the answers share the that's answers i'm right. um, share the questions well, we're going to run out of time they're going to cut us okay. right off so thank you everybody we'll see you next week on the blue highway good night all right thanks ladies good night thanks nick Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural Girls.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.